Rowland. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty, the podcast where we discuss today's most important civil rights and civil liberties topics. Today, the origins and future of Me Too. This month, some in the media industry marked what they called the one-year anniversary of the Me Too movement. That is, one year after the first bombshell allegations against Harvey Weinstein appeared in the New York Times and the New Yorker, and the Me Too hashtag went viral on social media. But in fact, the origins of this movement and the expression Me Too are at least a decade older. Their origin lies with the work of a civil rights advocate devoted to fighting sexual harassment and violence against women and girls, Tarana Burke. She is here to talk to us about her work today. And joining us in the studio is actor and activist Alyssa Milano, whose October 2017 tweet helped take Me Too to the center of the political conversation over the past year. Tarana and Alyssa, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Tarana, I I would love to start with you because you're a lifelong activist. (laughs) And before we even get to Me Too, you've advocated on a number of issues. Can can you tell us a little bit about your work as a civil rights advocate and mm-hmm. and what makes you tick? What makes me tick? <laughs> Injustice. No. Yeah, that's um, the right answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I come from sort of a conscious family. And so I had a mother and a grandfather who were very, very, well, people would call them left-leaning now, but we I grew up in sort of a pan-Africanist kind of household. And so that gave me a lot of just awareness. And then when I was 14, I joined an organization called the 21st Century Youth Leadership Movement, which was founded by um, veterans of the civil rights and black power and labor movements. And they, they really were concerned about making sure this next generation had carried on this legacy of work. And so from really early at like 14, I was organizing and it was a similar type of time period as now. So where like Black Lives Matter kicked off with Trayvon Martin being killed. And that was a catalyst in New York in the 90s or late 80s. There was Yusef Hawkins, which was a big case here for us. And so a lot of my early work was around racial injustice and economic injustice. When, you know, I campaigned for David Dinkins, that's how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) And um, yeah, and so I was in politics and just really so excited to be engaged at an early age. And I did not think about organizing around sexual violence until much later. But I know now that I was so engaged because I was a survivor and I really, it was something that took me away from that. Mm. And so that, you know, I could pour myself into this other thing. So you, in some ways you got involved in your community issues as a form of escapism? Yeah, it was, it was like, like I'm valuable in this space, right? Like in this other identity, if you will, I didn't feel valuable. I didn't feel useful in the world. And so this gave me like a sense of purpose. I think the combination of that and just having this energy, like I'm not really a public speaker. I know people say, oh, yes, you are. But mm-hmm. I don't, I would rather not be the person out in the front and talking. But well, thank you for being there's here. A, <laughs> there's a thing that happens. Literally, I can feel it's like fire in my chest and I have mm. to be like, oh, but I have to say it, mm. you know? I, I also think most activists and, and advocates are people that, were somehow silenced themselves. And so they feel a need to be the voice for people that don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. And if you were to ask most 
activists and advocates about their own personal past, I bet that there is some there is some Something. moment that they mm-hmm. were silenced that they felt or they was witnessed it or, or they witnessed mm-hmm. someone else being silenced and it affected them in such a way that they feel like they need to do something. And that fire in the belly is a great description. What about you, Alyssa? Many of us have known you for decades as mm-hmm. an actress. Have you always considered yourself an activist? Or well, my is- activism started when I was 15 years old which was the height of the Who's the Boss frenzy, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was in the 80s. And I was very dear friends with Ryan White, who I don't Mm. know if you remember who he was, but (laughs) he uh, was basically kicked out of a school because people thought that you could get HIV, AIDS from casual contact. And I met Ryan through Elton John and was with Ryan as he fought for his right to go back to school and also spoke in front of Congress. And he asked me again in the middle of the 80s when the stigma was at its craziness about HIV AIDS, if I would kiss him on national television to -hmm. prove that you couldn't get HIV AIDS from casual contact. And so I went on the Phil Donahue show. Remember. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who do not know who Phil Donahue was. Apologies to Phil if he's out there. He was a daytime talk show, kind of like a Dr. Phil. Mm -hmm. And I kissed Ryan White, and I realized really the importance of what being a celebrity meant Mm -hmm. and what he forever shaped what I would use my platform for. So I've been an activist my whole life, um, more so in the international realm. Again, same very politically active parents, but I've been a UNICEF ambassador since 2003, and I've traveled the world for children's rights. In 2000, I started driving people to the polls you know, it's amazing. yeah, and and I still do that to this right. day. Mm-hmm. I still drive. I just think going polls. viral probably looked different on the Phil Donahue yeah. show, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it did. There was no such thing. It was, it was, it was like, did you catch it? You missed it. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. You, it. It. you should have seen there. it. Yeah, but <laughs> it was it was a big moment because in the eighties, the show was number one, so it was a big thing, and it completely shaped my life. Yeah. Did you expect the power of your celebrity? Did, was it addictive? Did it make you realize that you had this incredible platform? And No, it made sense finally. <laughs> like it finally made sense to me that I was given this gift of being, you know, a famous young child actor. Like before yeah. that, I couldn't put everything in its right. place. And for but, many people, not a gift. So, mm. Well, yeah, it shaped the way I looked at it That's as right. being a gift. So um, You had something real to anchor you, I wonder. I had yeah. something real to not only anchor, but to motivate me to continue to have enough influence to make a change. So let's talk about the platform that you guys have collaborated on to create for me, too. Tarana, I know that the origin of that phrase and the activism dates back many years. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were thinking when you came up with that phrase and, and what the need was? I mean, the, the need was connection in this really basic way. And and I think that's why we saw it go viral in that way, because people need to be connected to other people. It was sort mm-hmm. of the power of empathy driving it. It was feeling desperate, living in the South, working with this group of Black girls who were in trenched in trauma in ways that they didn't even realize it had become so normal in their lives and there were layers of it and trying to unpack some of that and still dealing with my own stuff, right? Still trying to like figure out what this means to walk through the world with these wounds. 
you know, kids will always do that to you, whether they're your own or ones that you connect to. They force you to be better and they yeah. force you to think more and because you want to protect them. Like, that's your first priority. They and can so, also see through the bullshit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a really good point because mm-hmm. we would, t- I remember I would try to have conversations, but not put myself in it, not share my story, mm-hmm. not tell. And, and, and I would sort of end up just fade into the back, right? And not contributing in those moments. That's what happened with the, the, the little girl heaven. I was just like, I'm not about to say anything. You know, I'll listen and I'll console and I'll send you to the counselor, but I wasn't going to contribute. And just the small act of contributing my story and say, this is, you're not alone, right? So the stage was already set for it because these were young people who trusted me. So adding that other element was like, oh, Mm. this happened to you too? Like, Miss T, you, and then, you know, we use celebrity from the very beginning, um, which is why this is such an interesting full circle moment because I have these letters that I just found them maybe about a month ago that I wrote in 2007 to these Black women celebrities who I'd just done all this research trying to figure out anybody who would talk about their, their connection to sexual violence. And I found, you know, Gabrielle Union has always been out she's front. She's amazing. She's yeah, she's talked so about fierce. it, yeah. you know, pretty much openly since she came forward. But other ones, they would mention it in articles here and there. You could catch snippets. And I would just I just did that kind of research. Like anybody who mentioned anything, Mary J. Blige said it on Oprah once. Queen Latifah mentioned it in an article, Missy in an article. And I wrote to them and I said, I had been using them in our workshops. And that was a connection for the kids. It was like, oh, these things happen to an Oprah. Oprah was the big, big one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We tell the story of what happened in a generic way, and then they turn the paper over, and they'd be like, oh, what? Oh, wow, that's amazing. That happened to, yeah, right? And they'd be like, oh, wow. that happened to Gabrielle. Yeah, oh, my gosh. You know? And then we, and so the point was, these are people who you admire. These are people who you look at as successful. And I know mm-hmm. it's problematic to, like, center celebrity in some ways, but it's also helpful because for them, it made it was a very simple way to make the connection that your life doesn't have to be defined by this right. thing. Well, there are shared reference points, and right? also we, that this is a universal issue. This doesn't it just, could happen. It to doesn't them. discriminate, exactly. You know, status or financial or None community or any of it. So part of the pushback we would get from young people is they didn't want to be. It's like people who don't want to be victims. Of course, right? right. You don't want to identify as a victim or say something happened to you. So they'd be like, "Oh, it's not a big deal," or you know, they try mm-hmm. to find different ways to deflect. But having the celebrity there, it was like, oh, well, the same thing that happened to Gabrielle Union happened to me. And you're like, but look at who she is now. Right. And, and they'd be like, okay. You know, so it was an opening. It was just a, a way to get in. So I'm wondering, have you thought about ways to decouple victimhood from weakness? Well, I think that's what Tarana does so beautifully. Is mm-hmm. she? People might come to Tarana as victims, but they leave survivors. Mm-hmm. They leave as survivors. Um, For me, I'm still dealing with my own rawness, so I don't really know how to translate that in a way that is helpful for other people except to be the messenger or to be the megaphone and... I think it's okay to be that raw person mm-hmm. for other people and say, yeah, this hurts. The whole journey. And I cry yeah. and I'm angry and I'm fearful and I have flashbacks and it's horrible. You know, we walk through the rain, but we're not the rain, right? I get young people all the time, particularly in colleges, who are like, um, I can't wait to be healed. I can't wait to get, you know, to, to get to this place. And I'm like, listen to me. There are still days that I cannot get out of bed. Yeah. There are still days that I cry uncontrollably. I have triggers. I have flashbacks. This is the life of a survivor. What I'm telling you is that despite that, joy is possible. Right. Despite that, feeling whole is possible. 
because people have a stigma around victimhood, we try to move to survivor. I know people, they downplay it. They don't really understand what the day-to-day existence is. And that's why we saw what we saw in the reaction to Dr. Ford and yes. Kavanaugh case is that people really don't understand the life cycle of a survivor. Right. It's been made to be this simple thing, this journey. Healing is raw. And it is there's an ugly underbelly to mm. that. It's not just like, you know, sitting and meditating and burning candles and, you know, like— Writing in your journal every day and waking up like sunshine. That's not no the, the journey. This doesn't look like that, you know? Right. And we can't keep perpetuating right. that it does look it's like dangerous. that. Because then you think you fail when you, when you, don't, when hit you that. don't hit that Exactly. Point. And that's what we get all the time is people mm-hmm. saying, I'm trying to do this thing, but I still get triggered. But I still, and I'm like, no, darling. It's the acknowledgement, right? The fact that you can say, I'm on it. I'm in this. That you get back up the next day and you're like, okay. This is a good day, right? I think that's an important part of it. Do you think it. that this is the first time that this pain is so collective? Yeah. That's, to me, the most powerful part, yeah. for better and for worse, yeah. is that we're all triggered together. Mm-hmm. And how do we harness that collective pain into being collective power yeah. to, to walk through it together, to to implement change yeah. in, you know, whether it be policy or cultural change or whatever. This is the first time in my life where I feel like a collective— you can look around and you don't, there's no, the stigma is, and the stigma's still there, right? I'm not trying to make this seem like we've, you know, obviously we mm-hmm. know we haven't moved away from it. But my biggest vision for Me Too when we first started was that survivors would know it. And that we'd see it and it'd be like a secret code. We'd have like uh, window decals and, and car decals and you'd know, oh, that's a person who knows who I am, right? right. And you could see yourself in that. Because I thought other people will never get it. They won't right. catch on. But forgetting, I guess, knowing that the sheer magnitude of the people whose lives that have been touched by or affected by sexual violence is so great that even if it was just survivors, it's damn near everybody, right? Like, it's so many people. And so this collective moment, this this community that's been created, what happened during the hearing, right? When you had all those people coming together. I know this has happened to you, Alyssa, but everywhere I go— People are still raw. They're mm-hmm. still open. And it's still kind of like, it's been a rough couple of weeks, huh? Yeah. You know, like, it's an, it's just an agreement. <laughs> it's like By the way, even it. before Kavanaugh, oh, yeah. there was that. It's where been people like would a, see ooh. me in a in a airport and just start crying. Oh, and every I think, day. I yeah. think that Trump really put that in effect yeah. where people, women especially, are so scared. Mm-hmm. Since Kavanaugh, what we really felt there, this mob that Trump is talking about, is a collective <laughs> swell of emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and fear, but also like just strength and power yeah. and and a brotherhood and sisterhood that I just didn't know that I'd ever see in my lifetime. Mm. One of the things I was really struck by during, or I guess in the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings, was where where just a baffling <laughs> incident. We need not retread. Um, I'm sorry, we have to uh, retread it because no, we, just we for can. a second, sure. Alyssa was sitting in front of me in the hearing, yeah. and we couldn't talk. No, but and so she kept a, doing this. She was like, just the, she the kept side turning eye around profile, like, with the face, like, do you hear this? Yes. And, and then couldn't. I'd like, be like, squeeze hands uh-huh. and be like, just, we just got to get through it. I'm sorry, but no, go ahead. not at all. I mean, I, I'd love to ask you about your experiences at yeah. the hearing, especially since you were both there. What did you guys make of the Kavanaugh hearing as kind of a, you know, a marker of where we are? You know, how did it feel going through Kavanaugh and ultimately ending with confirmation? 
Well, <laughs> you know, what I keep saying is we may have lost the political battle this time around, but we are winning the cultural battle. Yeah. And eventually the, the political aspect of it will catch up to what we're doing yeah. culturally. And that was a very bizarre experience. I don't know about you because we haven't talked to each other, yeah. but I went from total pride and hope during during Dr. Ford's testimony and um, just feeling like such a survivor and that she was making me so proud. And then we went to lunch. And we went Remember? to lunch and came back. Yeah. And we, when we were at lunch, there was that, that scroll that said that Hatch said that she was an attractive woman. Yeah. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And we kind of had a little giggle about that. And then we went back in after lunch. And as soon as he blew open those doors, yeah. it felt like like an, an animal was something being, wicked this way come yeah was being released into that hearing it was, room it literally felt like he was shadow boxing on the other side of the door mm. and then they opened the door and he was like just ready to fight yeah. and I think I, it took it my shocking. breath away it was it was it I don't know what I was ready for I don't know I didn't prepare and as a matter of fact we were not gonna stay. I was positioned to come there to support her, and then we were doing an action in the in the atrium. We, we had all these survivors mm-hmm. who had come, and then we decided to go back. And I was like, I don't know why I felt like maybe protective of her. I just you were gonna stay. I, know I was you gonna were, stay gonna because stay. I knew I would be having to do do interviews yeah, based on that to see day. It, the whole thing. And yeah. I, I felt like if I wasn't there for him, I wouldn't be able to articulate it. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. so I felt like I had to stay. We came back inside, and it did feel like that. It just felt overwhelming. And then he was so aggressive and angry from the, the day one. And, and it was also so performative. Yeah. The, the performance That's of it felt point. disrespectful. It's like this woman came here and poured her heart out very genuinely. Nothing about it felt like performance. And then he came in on the—of course, I was yeah. done at that point. There was yeah. a performative cruelty. I cannot it imagine was, a woman in public yes. being permitted that, to engage oh in my God, No, yeah. God, no. Forget it. God, no. And the other thing about him just continuing to say that everyone was working as a political operative, oh, yeah. and yet he was the one that seemed like a political operative <laughs> yeah. because he was talking—not only talking about Clinton, but then fielding questions so differently from both yes. sides mm-hmm. of the aisle, right? Mm-hmm. The Republicans, he was very respectful, mm-hmm. and then the Democrats would ask questions, and he was so combative with every single awful. question. It was so gut-wrenching to yeah. feel that. And I think if those testimonies were swapped, mm-hmm. he might not be— Meaning if, if he had gone first and then she would have yep. gone? Yeah. He yeah. might not have been confirmed. Yeah. Because there was such a feeling of hope right. after her. Mm-hmm. And he sucked that away. During the <laughs> lunch break, I think Kavanaugh supporters actually ratcheted up their own rhetoric of harm, which was mm-hmm. that Kavanaugh was a, a victim, right? Oh, yeah. He was being railroaded. This narrative and was— that's clearly not limited to Kavanaugh. I mm-hmm. think that is the kind of the main note that has been sounded in response to Me Too is that it is fundamentally at odds with the American presumption of innocence. How do you guys grapple with this when you're accused of being part of a movement that is going to kill due process in, in well, the American— Well, first of all, the majority of these things that we're talking about are not criminal cases. Right. We're not talking about people who are going to court and have to prove, you know, the, the you know your innocence or proven guilt and all the rest of that. And everybody loves to talk about, well, this is, you're killing due process. The reality is, this is really a conversation about harm and harm reduction, more so to me than it is about crime and punishment. I think about this all the time in terms of Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford, right? It was 36 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
she has a fractured memory about it, right? Sure. She's clear about by the, her own admission, by her right. own admission, right? This is, she's clear about the the things that matter, but the the memory is fractured. However, what she's really saying is not Kavanaugh should go to jail. What she's saying is that this man caused me irreparable harm. Mm -hmm. This thing that he did to me, him and his friends did to me 36 years ago, has harmed me and haunted me for three decades. And there's a straight line between the 17-year-old who would disrespect me and my body and the 50-whatever-year-old who thinks he can make decisions about women's bodies for the Supreme Court. And I want to stand up to say that this is my experience. If Kavanaugh had responded to that by saying, I'm a different person now. I might have caused this harm 17 years ago. I drank excessively when I was in high school. My understanding of consent was different than it is now. You know, like have some level of accountability in it. I think he's a horrific candidate, regardless of Dr. Ford. So this is not about that. I don't, then let me confirm him. But I'm just talking about the way we approach this question, right? Most times survivors are trying to have a sense of accountability. There's studies that show that the majority of survivors don't think punitively. Their first response is not, I want you to go to jail. It's, I want to be made whole. Right. right. And so what she was really saying is that you have fractured a part of my life that I can't ever get back. And you're continuing to double down on this by saying that it didn't happen. Now you're making me out to be a liar and all, you know, I have to defend this thing. Take some accountability. Right. Yes, correct. And I mm-hmm. also think due process, we don't really know what that looks like for <laughs> sexual assault survivors because the system has always been against sexual assault survivors. I'm sorry to cut you off, but the other part of this that makes me scared, actually, mm-hmm. is that we all the progress that has been made around that, a person's word is enough evidence that you coming to court and telling your story is evidence enough. It took a long time to get to that point. And now with all of this narrative about, you know, you're killing due process and, right. you know, and we need more evidence and more evidence, that's going to have a real-life effect in courtrooms. Yeah. So let's take— Especially with— the courts being stacked the the way they are right now. When we're talking about reporting sexual harassment in the workplace, what is the ultimate goal of Me Too? What what do you want equality in the workplace to look like? Accountability for people abusing power. Mm -hmm. And I think the way in which we have to go about doing that is we have to figure out some sort of program where women can report to human resources together. We do everything together. (laughs) We pee at a restaurant together because we don't want that person to go into the bathroom alone. Why would we think that a woman, except for the fact that I think that men in positions of power have pinned us against each other, I don't think that any woman should have to go in in that position of being vulnerable alone to report some sort of harassment or or assault or misconduct within the workplace. I think there's got to be some sort of buddy system in place. And then I think we have to hold people accountable for their abuses of power. And have you seen any visceral change in Hollywood in the year since you've kind of been at the forefront of Me Too? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I do think that people and corporations are much more aware that people are enraged and if they don't do anything um, to hold these men accountable for their actions of abuses of power, that they, you know, lose shareholders or viewers or or respect within the community, whatever it is. And I also think that in my industry in particular, I have seen a noticeable difference of it's still not enough, but women getting hired for 
powerful positions, more directors, more storytellers, mm. you know, telling these stories from a different perspective, not victimizing women in, in every single movie, um, <laughs> you know. Things like that, I think, are powerful, but it's going to take time. But to yeah. think that we've come that far in, in a year is pretty outstanding. What do you make of the backlash against the Me Too movement? I say seriously. Bring the backlash. Do you, no, are, you, know do you guys why? perceive a backlash against you know feminism at large right now? Because what? there's of no, there's, yeah, there's, first <laughs> of all, there's no, this is not a linear movement, right? Shit right. is going to get broken. And that's just how you got to look at it, right? So to me, every time there's some sort of backlash, which, by the way, is usually some white man afraid he's going to lose his power. Mm -hmm. To me, it's an opportunity to have the discussion <laughs> and define what it is. Yeah. To me, it is so we're defining boundaries with every single piece of criticism. Where do the best conversations stem from? Criticism. So let's keep let's keep criticizing. I, I welcome it. Please question everything we're doing so that we could grow from it and get it right. Because I'm not fucking dealing with this with my daughter. <laughs> She's four. I'm not going to do it. So we got to get it right. So let's get it right. Criticize all you want. That's how I look at it. The only thing I would add to that is backlash, though. The backlash is more than criticism. The criticism I we can take because I think it's legitimate. Everybody is authentically in it. And so if it's a critique that we haven't grappled with, then let's right. grapple with it. Yeah. And if it's nonsense, you know, we like, no, that's nonsense. This is the answer yeah. to that. What concerns me is that the people who are in power, if you have the president of the United States, who's, I had a woman, two women confront me in the airport the other day. And this one woman postured as if she was going to spit on me. And they were Trump supporters. They were talking about I should be ashamed of myself. And I have sons, you know. So that that narrative is taking hold. Yeah. That narrative of men are in danger, boys are in danger are is taking hold. So we have to, you Frame know. Frame it. Right. We have yeah. to push back. And Our pushback assuming is that not woman just... wasn't about to spit on you, what <laughs> would you say? Why Why should women with sons not be freaked out? But wait a minute. Can I ask a question? Uh, why aren't women with sons freaked out that their son may be sexually assaulted or that? abused? It's one out of six boys exactly. and men. Why aren't they concerned that that's going to happen to their boy? Why is there immediate reaction to think that they're going their son's going to be the narrative cuz patriarchy yeah, well, is a hell of a drug exactly <laughs> exactly but the response to that one it's such a false narrative from so many different directions right one the idea that this is a movement that's targeting men specifically mm -hmm. and trying to take down boys specifically is wrong it's just wrong two no, this, as Alyssa uh, said it may include Male victims. It, of course it includes. It does, is, that's right. why I'm always like, it's a survivor's movement. It's not a woman's movement, right. right? We're talking about people across however you identify, you know, your gender are all survivors. Trans survivors, it's like, I, I heard a statistic the other day that oh. was crazy. It was like 84% of trans yep. people have survived sexual violence. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, it's trans insane. women of color and sex workers, I think, are statistically... Yeah, so like, this is, not, this is end, not about a gender. But also, yeah. this, this, this notion that... Um, we are about, you know, um, that it's a fight, that it's a war between genders. All of that is dangerous for both boys and for for whoever, however you identify. And so we have to really keep pushing back against that narrative is because it's more than critique. It's a falseness that they've built around us. That's it's like what they the sort of fear base that they take yep. out of a out of the playbook. Right. Yep. It's that. We don't want immigrants here because they're taking away your exactly. jobs. You don't want me to because they're trying to take your sons. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really fighting against yeah. all, all of that fear-based politics. And, and Tarana, I, we're getting really close to the end. So I would just <laughs> love to know, um, 
you you mentioned that your initial work started, you know, in, in your community and talking mm-hmm. to black girls in particular mm-hmm. about sexual violence. I think the last year, the face of Me Too has been fairly privileged, right? Because mm-hmm. we've been talking about men in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, or even with Kavanaugh, we're talking about a very small and elite group of prep school kids, right? right. Dr. Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, is the movement reaching black girls, more vulnerable women who are in hourly wage jobs? Uh, is it doing enough? And, and if not, what do we as feminists do to make sure that the movement isn't failing the most vulnerable I victims? think the first thing we have to do is understand what the movement is. If you subscribe to this definition that that media has created about the Me Too movement, then it's only about taking down powerful men. You know, who's it targeting next? It's this narrative that's sort of been created by politicians and media and folks who are just watching it like a tennis match. So there's not space in there for very many people. We don't even really hear about the the reality of the lives of the survivors in Hollywood, right? We hear more so about the perpetrators. So That's right. The, so That's exactly right. On the one hand, their representation is very important. And so we need the media to make a turn here to start covering these stories and elevating stories about black girls, about native folks. Like the fact that nobody talks about about the native community when sexual violence has ravaged the native Mm -hmm. community more than any other community of color is fascinating to me, right? There's so many stories that could have been plucked from this Me Too journey over the last year that just haven't been told. So that's one thing. The other thing is that as, as activists, as feminists, as advocates, as whatever, is that we have to stop buying into this popular narrative of what the, what this movement is. This is a movement that is for and by survivors. Yes. It is about getting resources for survivors. The fact that millions of people in the United States literally said, my life has been affected by sexual violence. Mm-hmm. The CDC, Nobody. somebody like somebody should be like, oh my god, that's an epidemic. That's an epidemic. Yep, nothing. Right? Look at this. The, the, you saw the report that came out: nineteen million tweets. Yeah, nineteen million tweets. And that's just that's tweets. Just that's tweets. not even Facebook. Facebook had twelve million engagements to, with the hashtag in the first twenty-four to forty-eight hours. Yeah. So we're talking about pandemic numbers. If you put those numbers on something else, if you put them on a disease. That everybody over in 24 hours woke up and tomorrow they had the Me Too disease and it was contagious, we'd be like, oh God, we have to shut this down. Yep. There's only three questions to ask. How did we get here? How do we stop this? And how do we make sure it never happens again? That's it. That's what this movement is about. Alyssa and Tarana, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to At Liberty. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more great conversations like this one.